listening to the Money Monopolizers Podcast, helping you take control of your financial destiny. It's about time that we invest more in our financial literacy and work towards building generational wealth. If you think you're ready to do the same, then you've come to the right place. Alex, Marlon, y'all ready? Let's get this bread. What's good, everybody? It's Alex Kamunya here. We are back with episode 88 of the Money Monopolizers podcast, and I'm here with my co-host, Marlon Walls. Marlon, how you doing today, bro? Don't worry about how I'm doing, bro. We got to get into this episode, bro. This this episode is so much freaking value that if people, if you if you listen to this whole thing, man, you're going to have a whole different perspective on real estate altogether. I'm not worried nothing about how I'm doing. Let's get to the episode. How, you could talk about yourself for a minute, but I don't got nothing to say. Yeah, nah, man. The episode was great. So today today we talked to... uh uh. Matt Smith. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> today, today we got to ugh. today we got a chance to talk to uh, Lance Smith, and uh, you know he he's killing it in real estate and with the short sale. So if y'all don't know what a short sale is, it's pretty much when you're buying a property right before you know people get foreclosed on, right? So right now in the environment that we're in, you know there's going to be a lot of opportunities to be buying properties at a super steep discount, and the strategy that he uses solely he only buys short sale properties, right? This is a strategy that you need to have if you want to be a real estate investor. A few years ago, people made a lot of money off of this strategy a decade ago. And so now, same thing is coming up. Um, so we think, at least. So, you know, it's definitely something to, you know, be uh, very, very, very cognizant of. And you want to get knowledge when this. He said he's done this for the last 13 years and he's done no less than $10 million in transactions every year. So, on the minimum, he's done over $130 you know, million um, just in transactions over the last. Uh, decade or so. So he definitely knows what he's doing. He's been doing this for a very long time. So there's no better person to learn the short sell game from than him. So yeah, man, we bringing y'all crazy value. So man, I, anyways, just, just the fact that I was able to like the way we, we were able to meet him is so so unique. So I met him at the business over breakfast event a couple Saturdays ago. And like, um, that was easily like one of the most life changing events for people who were actually paying attention. And I want to yeah. bring this up because I want to tell people how we brought and got him up or well, brought him onto the uh, show because um he was like well he'll talk about it more when we get into the episode but um he was not uh paid like people weren't at the event paying attention because just the atmosphere of the room and everything but the event itself like the people who put it on was a, it was a, just a, a pure success so i just wanted to say that he was one of the speakers that were there i was able to reach out to him right before he left after he finished speaking so I'm so glad we were able to get him on here because this is probably one of the most valuable episodes that we've put out. So we don't ever ask y'all to listen to the end often, but you want to listen to the end, especially if you want to get into real. If you don't care about getting into real estate, then you know it's on you. But there's a lot of value in here, especially really for everyone, but especially if you want to get into real estate, man. So please, please, please listen to the end of it. We don't even want to waste too much of your time because there's so much to get into through here. So that's why we kind of getting through this intro quick. So with that being said, let's get into it. What's good with you, Lance? What's up, brother? It's a pleasure to be here at the Money Monopolizers podcast. My brother, M.W., a.k.a. Molly Mall, and A.K. 47. Nah, <laughs> man. Big Al, as I like to call him. Man. So my, you should tell them why we all call you A.K. 47, because they probably want to know why. Why yeah. don't we A.K. 47? Yeah, man. So, you know, back in the day, we was, uh, we, was, we was playing football back in high school, and that was my initials, as y'all know, Alex Camuno's A.K., and uh, I was number 47, so... You know, in, in the slot. <laughs> it just works. AK-47. Yes, sir. Yes, Big sir. So what's up, man? How y'all doing this afternoon, man? What's going on? What's, what's, what's Talk to me. Talk to me. I'm your guest, but I want to interview y'all at the same time. 
No, we're doing great, man. We're we glad to have you on here. I, I love the energy you bring in, too, by the way. So I think it's going to be a really good conversation overall. And I think it's going to be very inspiring to our audience. So, yeah, we're really excited to get into this all, man. So um, I, we, we, I really want to start with this a little bit differently than how we normally do, because I wanted to talk talk about how I first met you and like where I, what's the space I met you in. So we met you um, a couple a couple weeks ago. It was at the event Business Over Breakfast, which was a great event. I think the, the host did a great job of putting uh, putting together. The, the guests were just all millionaire status, all tremendous value. It was so much uh, gain, so much knowledge that was given. I, they, they did a great job doing that. But when you were up there, it just it stuck with me so hard because when you were when you were speaking, there were some people in the audience that were not. In, ready to receive what you were saying in the room. And I say that because like some people were actually like talking over you, like you had to keep continue to stop and say, hey, um, I'm giving y'all a million dollars worth of game and people are not even paying attention. And I don't, I don't know how that sat with you. Uh, I kind of had a feeling of how I did because of how you were responding. But it was just to say that I don't think everybody in there was like ready to receive what you were saying, but it was so powerful to me that I want you to talk about it on here just for a, a brief moment. So can you talk about that a little bit? I see where you want to go with it. What do you mean? <laughs> responded. No. <laughs> okay, I, I want to give it all, but hey, I, there was one moment where we're talking about the um the foreclosures that are, that were going to come like come of age at some point in this near future, and some people are going to be victims, and some people are going to be the people that can take advantage of it. The people that were listening in that room were going to be the people that could take advantage. The people who were in the room that was talking over you and weren't, weren't paying attention, they're going to be the ones that, that were going to be the victims being taken advantage of. You had to point out, you point out little things like that. So I wanted to talk about it because I mean it was just very disrespectful in my opinion on some on the part of some people. So that's what I was I was answering. No, no, no. Understand, right? So personally, it's not my um, it's it's not my job, nor is it my responsibility to uh, tame a crowd in a house that I was invited to, right? So I came there with one particular reason, one particular um. I was invited there for one particular reason, to talk and speak on a topic that I'm very familiar with, that I'm an expert at. And those who were there to receive that information were there to receive that information, right? So firstly, there were a bunch of speakers, right? Speaking on all different topics. I mean, we had ranges from uh, from Toro, which is like, you know, the car uh, rental arbitrage business to different variations of insurance. Um, and then, you know, Airbnb and then, you know, the trucking industry and trucking place. So you had many speakers from many different facets of different industries, all doing relatively well, they're successful in that space. So whatever that they ended up bringing to that event was their knack, their niche, their specialty, their product. So everyone wasn't necessarily there for what I was looking to offer, just as everyone wasn't there for what each particular individual was there to offer. And that particular venue in and of itself, the business over breakfast, it was uh, it was held at a, it was a more relaxed environment. Right. So, you know, alcohol was being served early in the day, mimosas and things. It was it was, it was a it was a beautiful thing it was Sunday and um, people were kicking back and winding back. And you got to understand that right now we're at a place where events and gatherings are just starting to open up since COVID. Right. I know we were in Texas and a lot of people came from other areas of the country. And they finally, for the first time, had the ability to let their hair down. So you'd find any excuse in the world to get out of your house and do something and do something different. Then on top of that, you're in an environment where the venue is actually a club at night, right? right. So there's a bar, there's a huge, beautiful bar, alcohol serving, bottles are being popped everywhere. So that was the vibe, right? Being that that was the vibe, 
I wasn't expecting people to be fully intentful on receiving the information, especially by the time I got up on stage, because it was like, what, 4.30, 5 yeah. o'clock, and that thing had been going since 9 in the morning. And the alcohol was since around <laughs> 11.30. So, right. you know, it wasn't, um, I wasn't necessarily intending on, um, I guess you say, getting the crowd to be fully receptive to everything that I was saying. My ultimate goal is to actually speak to one person, develop one per develop one person's help one person develop a mindset and open them up to the opportunity that's here, you know, what's coming, uh, share my story, what I'm successful at and bring everything to the stage, whether it be, you know, my successes, my failures, because it's not all lollipops and rainbows, like a lot of guys like to tell you. You know, the uh, the microwavable millionaires, I like to call them. Um, they're starting, there's, there's a, I think right now there's a misconception that anyone can be a millionaire like overnight. And those are some of the things I speak against. But speaking to that oh, that actual event, it was great, man. It was beautiful. My guy, uh, O'Neill Parker, invited me there personally. Um, a lot of great speakers. You know, you had a Tia Blair. Um, we ended up chopping it up. And I know that's one of your buddies. Um, so it was a lot of good networking for me, and it was I loved it. Man. It was a positive experience, and all I really wanted to do, if I have the ability to take one person and change or open their mindset to what's about to happen in this economy, in this country, because I've seen it before, we're all a product of it, then I did well, right? And I believe that as long as you uh, do good, you will do well. So my, my, my intent when I got on that stage was to do good, and ultimately, that'll help me do well. And that obviously created that bridge between us, right? There was a gap that was there. You didn't weren't familiar with me. I wasn't as familiar with you. So that that bridge that was created there ended up being this. And like we all know, your network is your net worth. I'm trying to expand mine. You're trying to expand yours. Yeah, so we good, so man. The event was beautiful. I loved it. Business over breakfast. I hope they invite me back the next event or whenever. I'm always down, you know, moving the culture forward. And that's I mean, that's pretty much that. I do my thing and I try to help others do theirs. And that's what we about, man. We got to get together. And the thing about you guys and what you guys are doing in the space that you're in, you know, the money monopoly, the money monopolize, money monopolizer, <laughs> the money monopolizer, right? Yes, yeah. Sir. The money monopolizer podcast, man. That's a game changer because based on you know your ages, you guys are in your you know your lower twenties. I know Alex is like, I'll be twenty five next week. I'm like, relax, just say. <laughs> Right, you just hold on to it as long as you can, because when you get about to be forty like me, then you kind of wish you had those eight, those years back. So hold on to the twenty-four as long as you can. But what you're doing right now for the culture, man, is definitely going to help us push forward, move forward. That's why I'm here. People ask me to interview and speak to me all the time. I don't jump in everybody's situation. I don't affiliate with everybody. But once I got, I looked into you guys, saw what you were doing, what you were about, man, I'll definitely help y'all out. I'll definitely be a part of it, and let's make some, let's make some energy happen, make a combustion between us. And hopefully with this platform and this podcast and this interview, we can actually help some people in whatever area we like in us talking and having conversation. We don't even know how we might touch somebody to make a different decision yeah. that ultimately is a step in their journey for them to become successful so they can monopolize some money, too. You know what I'm saying? That's a fact. Yo, I would have, I would have thought the way Marlon was talking about it when after he talked about the event, I'd have thought you was in there throwing commotion, throwing tables around <laughs> the way this was describing. It. I was like, nah. yo, I gotta hear the story, man. This oh, man was really? so he basically he gasped you like, yo, listen, this was gonna happen. He's gonna be tight. Look, he didn't want to interview. He's gonna come on some King Kong energy. I know he's gonna, come out. he's gonna be tight. He's gonna curse me. I'm like, I know what you're talking. 
You have fire energy, bro. I, I love the energy. It's showing right now, too. Like, the energy was just good. Like, if people were receptive to what you were saying, like, I swear, it was just the room would have been just shut down. Like, I just know, like, the presence that you brought to the room just made me, like, it was. It really moved me. So I'm like, bro, if people were listening, everybody would be moved right now. So that's why I'm like, I want to get him on a podcast because our audience will be moved. They're listening. They want, they want the information that you have to bring. So that's why I was so adamant about it. And one thing that you learn about me and everybody knows about me, I'm just a straight shooter. Yeah. There's no time or no reason to sugarcoat nothing. For what? What do you should Like, I'm just a straight shooter. So I'm going to have a conversation. Let's just keep it real with each other. Let's exchange. If we have differences, we can exchange the differences. If we have a points of view that are alike, then we can actually, then those are, those are usually more comfortable. But there's no problem with me exchanging differences with anybody about anything. And if I'm positive that my opinion is the right one, then you can do it whatever, like, do yourself a service and try to convince me differently. And I'm open to that. But a lot of times my, um, I guess my demeanor comes across as a little bit more aggressive than I mean it to be. But I'm just straightforward, bro. I'm just a straight no You know, that's it. That's that New York energy, man. You know how we do it. It's just oh, about time it. for it. Like, let's, get, let's get to it. Yeah, and so I love it. I love it. I love it. And that's what I, I really want to get into that during this episode as well. I want you to, just, you know, give us the straight facts. We come in, you know, with a lot of heat uh, today, definitely in, t- in terms of what we want to get into. Real quickly, could you, like, briefly go into, you know, your upbringing real quick and just, like, your background with money a little bit? And then we're going to kind of transition that into kind of what you're doing now just because I know there's people listening and there's going to be a lot of people that could resonate with your background and your story just based off of kind of, you know, what we know about you. So please briefly go into that and then we'll get into it. Well, there's two things that you brought up that are two very different conversations. The first thing you said was my upbringing. The second thing you said was my early on relationship to money. Those are two different conversations. I don't think this is time or the place for the second one, but we could definitely have the first one. <laughs> That's All a right. fact. All right. So, um, no, I'm just kidding. Man. At the end of the day, um, me being a young black male, I think my story is very similar to many other young black males, right? Who end up not going to college and coming up in a two family household and, you know, watching mama struggle to pay the bills. I guess no, like this is the majority of us who end up um, overcoming strife, overcoming, I don't want to say poverty, but hard times. Um, the majority of us, we come from a place where there was struggle. And because become, because we come from a place that there was struggle, what we do is we, we only want to do better. We only want to move forward. We only want to move upward. Um, and because we've already seen that other side of life, then there's no, there's really no, there's no way to go, but stay stagnant or up from there. Because when you start from the bottom, like you go to the bottom of the bottom, you're on the floor. So there's only one way to go up or stay on the floor. Right. So I was somebody that, you know, from an upbringing perspective, man, I always wanted more, right? Always, always had an, uh, an insatiable hunger for more. Um, I was raised, like I said, single family um, household, predominantly by women, right? So it was my mother, my grandmother, my godmother um, who had raised me. I had a, a childhood that was a lot different than many others, um, especially from our demographic or our culture, because I had the luxury uh, at a young age to have, you know, a father, a stepfather, so to speak, that um, he was, he was, he was a corporate executive, right? He was a corporate executive. He wore suits to work every day. He made tons of money, worked on Wall Street. 
right? Um, very astute. Um, you know, I remember him getting picked up in limos to, to go to work um, in Manhattan. And, um, you know, we had the big house, the pool in the back. Um, but like I said, that was my stepfather, right? So I had a stepfather and then I had a biological sister that was my younger sister that was actually his child. And then, you know, he was married to my mom during my childhood. So they got married when I was at a young age. So there was a, um, anyone could see that being that this was my stepfather, there was a stark different relationship that he had had with my sister than he had with myself. Um, the one that he had with me wasn't the same, right? It wasn't, it didn't feel the same, it just wasn't the same. And, um, but the good thing about it was throughout my childhood, I saw this black man get up every day, right? I saw him put on suits, I saw him go to work. I actually, he would take me on trips to, um, to his job, like he would take me to his company and, you know, on Wall Street. And I, I remember going to the Mint a bunch of times and watching money be printed you know, riding in limos and uh, fancy restaurants, the white tablecloths as a child and uh, reservations. And, you know, like these are the things, vacations, like these are the things, having vacation houses, these are the things that I saw and experienced as a child growing up. So I experienced these things at a young age only to ultimately have that, have a shift, right? Have all that taken. Mom and dad split up, becomes a thing. Now the other side of my family comes from, a more, I guess you say, uh, harsh environment, right? So it wasn't the, it wasn't the, you know, no more limos, no more seeing a, 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 a male figure go to work in suits in corporate America. Now my, um, I, the examples that I see of men and those within my family are doing the street thing, right? So now I no longer live in that household, no longer live in that area. So now there's a complete whirlwind change at a very young age, and I'm talking early teens, maybe not even teens, maybe 12, 11, 12, around that age. Now there's a difference. And the difference now is um, things are difficult, right? The restaurants are over, right? The uh, vacations are over, right? The friends now look different because the friends that I had in the other schools, the private schools and things that I went to, the, that type of school set setting were different. They didn't, as in, they didn't look like me as often. So I went to a school that basically through my the beginning of my childhood, you know, my elementary, junior high and maybe first year of high school, maybe somewhere around there, the majority of my classmates didn't look like me. Right. In my whole entire school, there were you could probably count on two hands how many African-Americans or, you know, black people were in that school. All right. So the education system was very different. So that part of it also played a role because I had, you know, that, um, that, that education was far, far advanced from the one that I had obtained when switching over into the other, into my grandmother's house, which is where I ended up going, right? It was a, it was a different school district. Um, it was, it was a much, much different, um, atmosphere. It was different. It was different curriculum. There was, now there's a mix of you know, a lot of us in school now, right? So my friends started to change and the way that they responded to everything was different. So not only that, so because I'm living in that area now, my male figures, my male figures that I look up to, they're different. They're products of their environment. So what are they doing? They hustling and getting it however they can, right? And I get introduced to that at a young age and those things ended up helping to shape some of my hustle mentality along with the, remember the corporate background that was already instilled in me. And I'm taking these things and taking these lessons from childhood through adulthood 
and I'm kind of playing both sides. What do you mean by playing both sides? Well, to my strengths, I would use my education, right? Obviously, because now, like I said, the curriculum is very different. So now that I'm in a, uh, in a curriculum that's a much slower paced, I'm far more advanced than the majority of people in my school. So I can, I can close my eyes and I'm still two grades ahead. I don't even gotta show up when I'm, I'm on honor roll. Because of the education I was provided, I was already just leaps and bounds ahead. Yeah. So I just gotta show, now basically, what does that do? That gives me free time to, because school's not difficult, I'm not studying like that, everything's easy, right? Not only that, the household that I came up in before was very strict. Like you couldn't walk into the, like, if you had any, you walked into the household where I tell you that, that was, I guess people would call the finer things in life, you wouldn't, anything less than an A, like you're, like there's a problem. And I was a victim of, as a child of, you know, um, physical abuse and things of that nature. So I was, you know, used to get my ass beat when I didn't get an A, so I didn't want to get my ass beat all the time. So I ended up getting the best grades I possibly can and bring them home. So I had no choice to do grade school, right? So now I'm in a place where there's a lot more freedom, right? So I can do pretty much what I want because because I came from such a harsh environment when I move into the one that's that's um that's actually love in the house and you know my family member, it's just a different vibe. It's a different thing. I mean, we're going around the corner to borrow sugar and borrow bread, but I'm loving it. Like the love is here. This is my family. This is my this is what I love, right? I don't have the pool, I don't have you know all the fancy clothes anymore, but this. Like where I'm at right now, and I'm running around stealing bikes, and but this now, oh, this is my family. These are my cousins. Like this is what I'm loving this part. So, um, having both of those yeah. backgrounds, both of those. Now, if you follow me, then you'll understand that that street side. Like I'm telling you, the hustlers and the things that now they're my mentors. Now these, you ready? So, they're my mentors now. I already got the book smarts. These are my mentors. And now with the combination of those two things, ah, man, because corporate America in the street, corporate America in the street, I figured out a pretty much the same thing. The same thing. There's a direct, I mean, it's like a highway. Like a, it's like a street, it's, like it's parallel. Corporate America in the street is pretty much the same thing. What do you mean it's the same thing? Well, the rules are pretty much different. They just have different levels of, I guess you say, um, different tickets for infraction, right? So corporate America, you can make as much money as you want to make. And, you know, you hear all the times about people in business doing cutthroat things to shut down companies and things of that nature and people doing cutthroat things in business to, you know, and, and then what happens? Like the, actually at the end of the day, the biggest The biggest thing that people fear in corporate America when they do something wrong is like court cases, typically, right? Fines, court cases. In the street, when you come with that background, like the ramifications are different. Things don't go well. Well, it might be off with your head, right? So if you have a if you have the ability to understand how to navigate corporate America, but you have the discipline. Right. And you have the fear of ramification that comes from the street, as well as the mentality to understand when somebody's trying to play you or somebody's trying to get over um, and understand when you're bringing on, even when you're bringing on team members. When you're bringing on team members, is very, it's very similar in, in corporate America or just running a business, period. If you're bringing on team members, you're going to want to vet them, right? You're going to want to make sure that they're loyal. 
You're going to want to make sure that they hold integrity. You're going to make sure that they hold the same morals as you. You want to want to make sure they're hard workers. You want to make sure that you can trust them. You want to make sure it's very similar. So if you have the ability, like many of us do, because many of us become leaders at a very young age, is it the wrong thing? Like how often when you, you probably, you, the one, I would guarantee you that you, you guys would be the guys in your neighborhood. Like when you, you would jump on the, the, on the bikes with the kids and be like, where are we going? And be like, Marlon, where are we going? And look at you and you'd be like, you'll be in the front and then you'll lead the way. Yeah. AK, they look at you mm -hmm. like, listen, after school, what's the plan? And they'll look up to you and ask you what the plan is. Little do you know that you, those are leadership skills that you developed early. They just weren't like, and then it's up to you to, to nurture them. And how you nurture them is how, and how it ends up playing out. See, many of us don't even realize that we're leaders early, but we do have to be following leaders to learn, but we end up just following, not leading anything, right? So what I'm telling you guys is I know that you guys are actually leaders and the things that I'm identifying with you, these are the things that, that helped me become successful in corporate America, in business, as an entrepreneur, um, and having my antennas up all the time and, you know, looking at a man in his face and figuring out what's really going on with him. Is somebody trying to cheat you or like, those are the things that you recognize and those are the things that you realize. So, um, like I said, it's just, we can go into this for hours and hours about how, you know, being an entrepreneur, running and having a team in business and in corporate America are very similar, if not the same as that of the streets. It's just, well, what's your product? What are you selling? What are you selling? What are you pushing to the people? Um, what are you involved in? And do you pay taxes on it? <laughs> it's really it. Now, there was so, I, I love that entire segment right there, just leading up into um, who you were, but also talking about the leadership piece at the end. That was so profound for me because I was, we, I think both me and I was resonating with that big time because we know how we were used to be leaders back in a freaking junior high school, high school, we were just like doing something as mundane as running laps on the track. We'd be the one that's leading the pack and everybody's and the coaches are saying that's our, that's your example right there. Follow follow their lead, do what they're doing. They're the ones that are disciplined in, in um well in regards to uh, condition speed and strength and conditioning and stuff like that. It's at a very mundane level, very a low level, but the principle still applies to the, the fact of leadership. And um I want to go back to your story though because that was really that I, I, now I see a lot of how um, your upbringing can really influence how you are as a person when you grow up because by you having both the perspectives of the corporate America side, the business side, as well as the street smarts along with it, you are now a very a special anomaly, a type of person that can relate to both sides. You can relate to somebody who is in the streets because you know that what you know what that game is like. You know what they're thinking. You know how to, what they're going through. But you also know how to talk and carry yourself in the corporate environment. So now you can make those business deals. You can establish those business relationships. You can do the things that people from the just that only know the streets. Uh, <clears throat> you can do the things that, that they don't know how to do because you've seen both sides, you know how to navigate in both spaces. And I think that's a that, it's a very special trait that not a lot of people have because they haven't been raised in both those atmospheres. So now I want to just start, start progressing a little bit to see how has that played a, a role in you? I, I want to comment on that too. Uh, yeah, go quick. ahead. Because one thing, one thing that really reminded me of is a uh, 50 Cent story too, Curtis Jackson, in terms of how he grew up too. Because uh, he grew up in New York too. Um, and you know, he, he, he talked, What's up? You like that? He's like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's because one, I I read the book The Fiftieth Law of Power by him and uh, Robert Greene, 
and they t- he talked a lot in there in, in terms of how there were so many um it, it, the streets synergized really well with the corporate world right because he grew up obviously you know drug drug dealing all those kinds of things and then at a young age in his early 20s he kind of transitioned into the, you know the rap game and uh you know when he started signing you know record deals and those kind of things it was the same you know kind of things happening on just different ramifications right and it's crazy to see that but 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 what what he did was he was able to take a lot of the things that in the principles he learned from the streets and apply it into you know the corporate world specifically with the music and he created an empire off of it and that's really just like such a unique situation that you know most people don't ever see that perspective in that way but it's it's a it's a crazy perspective that you actually have that a lot of people like Marlon says it's anomalous a lot of people will never see things that way just because you can see it you know in, in two completely different lenses so that's just I just wanted to point that out because that's what it reminded me of too with that and it was crazy to me because I didn't even recognize it right so as a kid like we would go out like I was so used to eating at um as a young and you know I was helicopter rides and flying on planes and like like my staple food was like lobster and shrimp and crab. It was like a thing, like it was a little staple. So even as a child, I would go out to restaurants as a child and like I would order, I have lobster and then adults would be looking at other people, you know what I'm like, how you know how to eat that? I don't even know how to eat that. <laughs> I'm just like, what do you mean? And I'm just, but, and it just started to resonate. As I got older, it resonated and I'm coming around like every time I go out, I'm ordering things that people never even know existed. And that's yeah. still even now, like it's crazy that Listen, it's so much happening as far as um, our community and, you know, the, the opportunities that we're actually that we're actually taking advantage of as um, as a people. Right. The fact that real estate is now um, a thing that we're actually open to understanding and starting to learn. And we're still starting to buy property and own land and own a little piece of this country that um, that's pretty much old to us that we should be at the end of the day. Everyone should on a piece of this land out here and it should be focused on it, but that's a story for another day. The um, the amount of change that I see happening, bro, and with guys like you and putting information like this out there, it's just so beautiful, man. And it's a situation that as a child, so many things that I experienced, remember those all got snatched away from me. Yeah. From that situation that worked with mom and dad. So all that was now taken away, but now, I want it back. So now in my in my teenage year, like I want, first of all, I have a role model now. I want to be that guy. Like ultimately, I want to be the guy that got picked up on limos every day, had custom suits made for him, who was shining his shoes, right? Who got shape ups and haircuts and the Barber King to him all the time. Like I want to be like the briefcase. Like this is what I saw, the trench coat, the overcoats, getting on and off the train, going to Manhattan, walking in the buildings and saying, hello, Mr. Smith. I want to be that guy. No doubt. So y'all want to be rappers and hustlers and ball players? No, nah, I want to be the guy because that's what y'all see. Now I didn't. I saw that. That was cool. But see, when I saw the ball players, I saw the ball players from the stands. I saw the ball players from Madison Square Garden sitting watching the game. Majority of people were watching ball players solely from their television. I want to watch games like this all the time, my whole entire life. When I watch a game, I want to go to the game and I want to sit in the. I want to go just like this. So I want to see. I want to see Patrick Ewing like I see him right now. Yeah, that's that was instilled in me as a kid. So when I couldn't have those things anymore, I knew that I had to figure out how to make that my life. Yeah. So the things that fascinated people when it came to 
um, you know, cars and cold and jewelry and all the rest of that stuff. That 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 played out like that. That played its in in my life and like it, it played, but not. It was never the ultimate goal. See, many times we get distracted by the uh, successes of people and the belongings and the material things, and we get so blinded and, and and we get so blinded by those things that we actually we leave out, forget, negate, or totally discount the fact that it took work to get there. So we want the thing. And that's usually why fast money is our avenue because we see that I want the thing and the people who are making the fast money have the thing. So I got to do fast money thing to get the thing that they, that they have. And that's our only role model. And the majority of us know, like, listen, I'm not even tall enough. to. I'm not going to be Michael Jordan. I'm not big enough. I'm not fast enough to be a football player. So who are your other influences? Or oh, my other influences is Ty. Ty's on the corner. Ty gets money. Ty got to drop top beamer. Ty got all the girls. Ty got gold change. And Ty looks like he's living a life. So I want to be that guy. So with that being all that a lot of us knew, it kind of, it made me realize how different I was than everybody else at a very young age. Because they were focusing on being that thing and I was focusing on like making you work for me so you can get that thing and I can do what I want to do. Yeah. So that was so at a young age, I had barber shops and I had beauty salons and I had car dealers. I had a lot going on, ice cream shops. I had a lot going on in the hood, right? And I was doing my thing, but I was doing my thing only like there was a means to that end. Like I actually wanted to be involved in real estate and I figured that out early. And I did everything you can imagine outside of it, knowing that there was going to be a day that I was going to hang it up. And that day to come and I hung it up. And when I hung it up, I made a direct transition into the real estate industry and I never looked back. So I think my motivation came from a place of having, losing, mm-hmm. and wanting again. Yeah. See, a lot of times that we get focused on the wrong things because we've never actually had anything or much. So what we, had, we, what we end up um, seeing success as it's usually something that it's not even success. It's usually a what we deem success success or the the, the things that the trophies and the accomplishments that successful people have, like we directly associate those things with their success. Not realizing that those things that they show you, those are just byproducts and rewards that came with the success that they got, but the ultimate success was not getting that thing. See the thing that they have, like they don't even want them, it's not even a thing to them. So the designer is not a thing to them. The car is not a thing to them. The jewelry is not a thing to them. But to you, it's everything. And because you make that your everything, you end up being nothing, typically, because you're focused on the wrong thing. And I just never focused on the wrong thing. I focused on what I didn't have and I wanted back and I knew the life I wanted to live. Because I knew the life I wanted to live, I knew that I had to do, I had to figure out how to get there. And me amassing, accumulating funds, however I did, would ultimately get me there where I didn't have to have a boss one day and I could rule and I could control my own destiny. I could be financially free. But then this real estate thing in it. And it was like, I found it. I found it, fell in love with it, ran with it, took everything that I knew um, from the, 
um, from the entrepreneurial standpoint, the, the skill sets that I've, I've learned and the traits that I learned. And um, needless to mention that my, my stepdad that was in corporate America was also heavy in real estate, heavy in real estate. Right. So I, I saw those things and having everything taken away mm -hmm. is the biggest motivation to make or break you to get it all back or fall flat on your face. It's the worst thing to have something having to take away and having to experience it. And that's what an underdog is. You got to get it all back. And in hustling, first of all, that was the biggest get back. The biggest get back was getting back to that life that I never, that I wanted to create for myself. Then the second get back was well, all the time. Well, you used to in the street. You used to the ups and downs. You used to taking losses and getting back up. So it's nothing to me. I'm conditioned differently at that point. You know what I'm saying? I'm conditioned for the losses. It's nothing to a loss. Something that was seemed devastating to somebody else. I snap back. It's a bounce back. It's nothing. I'm used to it. So being coming from that environment that I came from, I was just so used to losing that when I won, I didn't even necessarily see it as a win. I just saw it as another step. I didn't see it as a win. See, people judge my, 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 they judge from a distance what I got going on and they judge certain things that I do and certain things that they actually see as wins for me. But those aren't wins for me. Those are just steps in the process. Yeah. Right. So it's just, um, that, that's, that's my thing, bro. My thing is, is, is understanding and being prepared for any day, everything being taken away. What would you do? Half of us would jump off, jump off a project building. Right. Because we're not used to there's There's no there's no character of resilience in us. We don't have that trait. And just having losing, winning and losing, winning and losing, winning and losing. It's like, like double touch. OK, sometimes I win, sometimes I lose. And you have to develop that type of skin to be any type of business owner, any type of entrepreneur, any type of CEO. You have to be comfortable, just as comfortable with the losses as you are with the wins. But you just know how to navigate the wins. So the wins end up being more wins. But it also is a gamble, and losses are gonna—they're gonna—they're gonna pop up. You don't win every day, but the goal is not to lose every day. Yeah. But you gotta know how to handle it and pull yourself back up and get back to it, no matter what. And if you can't, that's not your thing. Then go for that application. Don't yeah. this is hiring. Like that's it. This world is not for everybody. This entrepreneurial thing, this CEO thing, this running a company and running a team and being responsible for people and having employees and managing payroll, payroll, like this is not for everybody. And leasing space and being concerned about other people's well-being and health insurance. And that's not for everybody. Like, let's not, like, it's not for everybody. And I don't wish it on everybody. Shit, there were times that I, in this in life and in business itself, I saw the question whether or not I want to keep doing this thing this way. So we all have to find out, we have to find out, um, there has to be a deep enough why, obviously, you guys know that. You have to find a why, like, why are you doing this? Outside of that, you got to figure out if this, if you really built for this shit. Because if you're not built for losses, bro, go get a job. <laughs> Period. And let someone else, and let someone else feed you and let someone else financially dictate your future. Because if you are not prepared to handle a loss, then you're not necessarily prepared. And if you've got a family and things of that nature, if you're not prepared to handle a loss, then you should probably get hand-fed, spoon-fed, get fed. You know why, you know why there's lions in the zoo? The lions in the zoo, right? Because they can't take care of themselves. There's <laughs> lions in the wild. So the ones in the zoo, they, you know, they do their thing. They, but guess what? 
because they they're fed there's a small space they can find to, and it's only much so much they can do. But they're fed every day. Now, the ones in a while, oh man, they gotta figure it out. They gotta figure out how to eat the whole pride. You gotta take care. And if you elect to take care of a pride and take care of a people, and you wanna be king in the jungle, there's certain obligations that come with that territory. No shoes are too big for some people to fit. And now you see a lot of people thinking that they're, you know, I'm a CEO. And I'm a boss, and that's like the thing, right? Come on, son. Relax. You never seen nothing. You never seen no struggle. Why? Because you created an LLC. Now you spent <laughs> six hundred dollars. You a boss? Okay. Right. <laughs> so it's more than just creating an LLC and establishing some business credit. If in fact you want to develop a company or have people work with and for you, and if you, as an individual, realize that you do not want to hold onto that type of responsibility. If you realize that the thing that's called uh, success is actually directly associated with a thing that's called failure, if you don't realize that those two things come together, it's just, you. success and failure are like this. What you actually have to ultimately do is make them separate, right? as much and as far as possible, as often as possible. And then the better you are at creating a wedge between success and failure, the better you are at business. Because at the end of the day, it'll always do that. And then what you got to do? No, man, that's <laughs> real. <laughs> Come on, bro. Hey, Over. hey. I had you go. He was like. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, I'm glad you talked about the wins and losses, though, because that we, we did a whole episode on talk, talking about in terms of is, is entrepreneurship actually for you. Right. Because a lot of people had a wrong idea of what it actually is. And we've been we've been in we've been in this space for for the last since 2018. Right. So it's not like we like, you know, you've been in the game 17 years in real estate. So we obviously not that season. Can I tell you something? What's up? You've been in the game since 2018. You've been in the game. Don't feel bad. Longer than I've been on social media. <laughs> I've only been on social media for like six, 14 months. Okay, and I'm counting the months. Wow. I just yeah. started this thing. I was really doing the business thing. But, yeah. but again, I'm just saying, don't, that you've been in this a long time. Yeah. That's a, especially at your age, that's a long time. Sure. Yeah. And so one thing, okay, because <laughs> the reason I brought it up is because we actually, we, I don't know, I don't even know we even told you, but we're in real estate as well. And so we own a few properties and we've been flipping houses. We've done like 10 flips over the past few years. And actually, you know, the one, it's funny, I'm actually going to close on it today after this podcast. Um, we lost, we just lost, you know, 15, around 15 or 20,000 on our latest flip that we just did. Right. And this is the second, I think third time, no, second the second time technically that we've lost on a deal right so we like eight for ten so it's not bad but what the reason i bring it up is because it i was actually kind of relieved whenever we actually did lose on it because what ha what i realized is like we 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 kept like winning on so many of them that it got to a point where it's like okay am i is it really is it really just like this easy like do we really just keep you know <laughs> buy a house at this price put some work into it flip it at this price and it's that easy and so now it's like losing on a couple more of them. It kind of makes you know if you're built for those losses because you really don't know until you could take those losses, right? And so that's, you know, one of the things that 
a lot of people don't actually know about entrepreneurship and we'll never figure out because most people don't even get to a point enough to where they can actually take a loss because it's even a lot. It's It takes a lot of work to actually even take a loss because there's a lot that you have to get to. Um, you have to build up to in order to take a significant loss enough to feel something. Right. Um, so I'm glad that you brought up that point because that's super, super important. And we ain't even gotten to the real estate. We ain't talked about it. <laughs> we talked about real estate. We to go real estate right now. Yeah. <laughs> you heard what you just said? See, what you said in the last couple of years, you've done about 10 and your success rate was about 80 percent. Well, why? Well, uh, because the market was frothy right? <laughs> prior to COVID. Yeah. Nice. Everybody's making money. And what's happened over the last two, three, four years, because the market has been so frothy, you've seen out of nowhere, all these guys just pop up teaching and coaching and training. I'm successful. I do real estate. I wholesale. I flip and flip. I do whatever the game. How have you been doing? I've been doing this since 2018. I'm a killer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not even a full fuck. That's not even a cycle. That's yeah. not even a real estate cycle. No. So you've been doing this since you've only seen one side of the cycle, right? So this whole thing that's happening right now is new. It's going to be new. Yeah. And what you're experiencing right now, the loss that you just the, the loss that you just saw, I'm glad you saw it now, just as you are, is <laughs> going to become the new normal. You see, <laughs> what's happening right now is there's this false sense of security in real estate, and there's this false sense of um, market conditions that are going to sustain. So people, they're under the impression that you know the, the cost of real estate and and, and uh, equity is being created on a daily basis because there's scarcity and because there's scarcity, you know, prices are going up and because prices are going up, the market's going to do great for so long, forever. That's what they think. But what's happening is now you have investors coming into a market that's booming, intending on making a lot of money. But the problem is that they're overpaying. Yeah. Yes. What do you mean they're overpaying, Lance? There's always a price of real estate in order, so it always goes up. Okay, great, stupid. Check it out. They're overpaying because right now we're in a time where property values, it's unprecedented what properties are selling for right now. Because you have a combination of two things. Interest rates being ridiculously low. Mm -hmm. The demand properties being high and inventory being low meaning that there aren't many houses on the real estate market there are people who are qualified to buy houses so they're looking but there aren't that many houses on the real estate market and interest rates are historically low so because interest rates are so low the buying power that someone has is now tremendously raised. So someone who, if you, at the interest rates that we're home to being offers right now, interest rates in the 2% range, twos, lower threes. So now you got someone who makes, I don't know, your median income, depending on where you are in the country, you make 40 grand a year. And now you could probably qualify for homes, $300,000 properties. Whereas 40 grand, where the interest rate before was in the fives and sixes years ago that, that 40 grand a year probably end up getting them a hundred and eighty thousand dollars house. Right? So that because the availability of funding 
or money is there, people don't even care what they're offering anymore, as long as it's affordable from a payment perspective, which is driving prices up. Yeah. Along with, well, we just said there's no inventory. Well, Lance, Mr. F Real Estate Guy, why is there no inventory? There's no inventory because people aren't in a rush to sell. Who's not in a rush to sell? Okay. Those who are actually selling right now are people, the smart ones are the ones who have equity and they realize that they can make a power play right now, make a hell of a lot of money, move to a different area at a different price point, wait, wait for a while, don't even buy all over again, just salivate and bask in the successes that they're going to make off of their home sale right now. Even if they go rent something somewhere for the next year while they figure it out, the amount of money that they'll make right now, they'll probably won't see for another 30 or so years. Well, make, make it make sense, Lance. I'll make it make sense. I got a, a buddy of mine who I spoke to two days ago. And he said to me, what do you think I should do? You know, I can rent my house out. He lives in his house. I can rent this house out for uh, $2,000 a month. My mortgage payment with taxes and insurance is about, um, no, he said I can rent it out for $25. My mortgage payment with taxes, insurance, and everything else is about um, $1,700, Um I said, how much you owe on it? I owe about, you know, less than $200,000, $140,000 he owes on it. I said, okay. And you know in the market you're in, you know you could sell a house for three eighty dollars right now. You sell it for three eighty, dollars which is unfathomable in the market he's in. Typically, those houses go for three, three ten, right? So I'm like, so basically what you're telling me, you have the ability to make about $250,000 now, today, two fifty, Or you can collect positive cash flow, deal with tenants and make $700 a month above and beyond your mortgage payment. Um, well, if you made $700 a month over the course of a year, that's $8,400 you made a year. If you made $8,400 a year, it would take you 10 years to make 84,000. It would take you 20 years to make 168,000. And it will take you 30 years to make the money you can make tonight. When am I listing your house? Because either you're gonna take the money right now, cash out, and make more money than you can ever make off of this house, Literally, exit, cash out. You know, a quarter million dollars or so in your pocket. Or you can become a landlord. Hope they pay you. Hope government programs don't change and, you know, Section 8 and all the rest of it doesn't change. Hope that the tenant that you actually rent to keeps their job for the next 30 years, depending on who they, are, they might be. Or you can cash out right now. And even if you don't want to wait, even if you don't want to jump into another piece of property, you know and I know that you can rent a house similar to you in a much better area and you can spend two grand a month. And you can take your time. And that two grand a month, you go lock in somewhere for a year, you'll spend $24,000 over the next year. But you're still walking away with the a quarter million dollars that you never will see while you figure it out. And because the market's about to do what it's about to do, and he's smart, he knows, you'll then end up capitalizing on your gain that you caught now by buying a property discounted because you rock with me. <laughs> See the house that I'm telling you about that he's selling 
the 300, probably 380, maybe 390. Oh, yeah, I got him that house for $150,000 a few years ago. And I sold him at that price, renovated a few years ago. And he's actually going to be at my event. I made him come. I said, well, I was in the phone. I said, you got to come to the event, too. <laughs> and I'm going to use him only as an example. So when I tell you that real estate investors who became successful over the last couple of years, they've never seen the up and the down of the market. I'm telling you that because with the loss that you just created, that you just caught, lack of inventory. I'm going to go back there now. Lack of inventory. Interest rates being low. And there being a buyer pool actually looking. Okay. So what's happened over the last year? Over the last year, banks have allowed people who have mortgages not to pay their mortgage. These agreements have been called forbearance agreements for the last year or so. In that forbearance agreement, the bank basically, the mortgage holder basically said, hey, Marlon, you're having problems right now? We get it. You don't have to pay us. You can go a whole year and not pay us. Not only are you not paying your mortgage company, They're not even reporting to your credit report that you're not paying them. Yeah. Okay. So you're not paying the mortgage company. They're not reporting that you're not paying them. So your credit credit score isn't plummeting. You're becoming conditioned to not paying. To, to, like the worst thing to do is become conditioned to not pay where you live. Because by the time they come back around, it's like, okay, cool, you can start paying us again. Like, nah, I like this not paying thing. What you mean? Not only are you like. I like this not paying thing. You're like, well, when you made me comfortable by telling me not to pay, you know, I kind of didn't have, remember I told you I wasn't working. I kind of didn't really have any ambition to go get a job because you weren't making me pay anyway. So all those people who didn't go out to find jobs because the country was pretty much, you know, it made it very, it made it very comfortable with PPP loans and extended unemployment and stimulus checks. It became very comfortable for people not to pay for where they live and not to have to go work and like it was a great thing party's over <laughs> now that the party is over the same people who didn't go out and find work smart ones went out and tried to find some type of work but i guarantee you i'd say 75 to 80 percent of them are not making the money that they made prior to COVID. how about how many businesses shut down Business owners who didn't come back and can't come back. How about the employees of those business owners that still don't have jobs? And the ones that do have jobs, they're making less money. Those are the people I'm talking about. So these people, you think they don't have mortgages? So what happens when they get back on the phone with the bank a year, 14 months later and say, okay, the forbearance was great. Here's my paperwork. Here's the documents you asked me for. I want you to extend this thing for me. And the bank's like, Matumbo. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. We can't extend this again. We gave you 14, 15 months. You ain't figured it out yet? No, and I'm still not working. Check this out. What we're going to have to do is we're going to have to sell that house. Or we're going to start the foreclosure proceeding. Sell my house? Yeah. Now, some people were smart. It was, I didn't have to pay the bank, so they were just putting the money away. Other people were blowing it left and right. Some people are prepared for this rainy day. Either way, you're not working and you can't prove to the bank because once you come out of that forbearance agreement, in order for you, right, to get back on track, what do you have to do? Well, just like when you bought the house, you have to prove to the bank that you can now afford it. For them to modify your loan or approve your forbearance to give you a new payment, you have to submit documentation showing that you can afford the house that you live in. 
So what happens when they ask you, they request the documentation for you to show that you can afford the house that you live in? Well, you're still not working, or maybe you are and you make less, but you see what happened when you bought the house, you bought the house and you lived a different lifestyle, right? You bought the house and you figured that you had a mortgage payment you could afford and now you're making some money. So what does that do? So now I got that under wraps. I'm, I'm, I know how much money I make every month. So now during the time that you own this home, you go out and you get a car loan. <laughs> you get that loan from Mercedes. And then your girlfriend, or boyfriend, or husband, they want a car. You co-sign for that because your credit is good. You co-sign for that car loan. Now you got two car loans in your credit. Now your kid needs a co-signer for school. Uh, use co-signer for that. And now you got credit cards up the wazoo because you bought a house. Now your credit is amazing. Everyone's issuing you. They're all approving you for credit. So you got credit cards. You got car notes. You got a mortgage. Guess what happens when you go to the bank? When you go to the bank and the bank says to you, show me the documentation that you can provide that you can afford this house. You give them your documentation. And they look at the amount of money you make and they look at your obligations on a monthly basis. Tell me about these car loans you got. Tell me about these credit cards. Oh, you still got student loans? Damn, you got timeshares in Miami? You got a second home too? How are you going to afford all this? We can't issue you a modification. We can't modify the terms of your loan. We can't issue a forbearance because we know that if we do, you're not going to keep up. And then what you'll do is you'll sue me for predatory lending because you just showed me that you can't afford the house. I cannot issue you a new mortgage because you have me in court. So now what I am going to do is I'm going to extend the ability for you to sell your house for less than what you owe me. And that is about to be real estate period. See, what things, what people have been used to the last few years is getting on the phone with people and who were in situations where they had equity, maybe unrealized. They didn't know they had equity and they'd have a conversation with them and they would pull a wholesale trick, right? Like, hey, I'll offer you X amount of money for your house. And they might say yes. And then with the person who made the call, who got the person to um, sell, get them house and contract for a, a, a low or a small amount of money, they would then lock the contract down under the guise that they were going to buy the house meaning that let's play pretend. I pretend call people all day long and tell them I'm gonna buy the house. Meanwhile, I don't have two nickels to bump together. <laughs> when my sole intent was to only get that house in contract, only to provide that contract to somebody else that actually has money, make the money in the middle, and cut the person who actually owns the house out. That's wholesaling, period. And that's like, at the end of the day, I'm not judging it. Not my thing, that's just what it is at the end of the day. It's an arbitrage game, that's it, right? So that's been the business. Why has that been the business? That's been the business because people had unrealized, untapped inequity, right? They didn't know. And because the market was doing so well, there was plenty of opportunity for guys to get in quickly, issue a contract to someone else quickly, get it closed quickly, make a couple bucks and keep it moving. Well, what happens when the equity position isn't the same? What happens when people who actually own these hard assets, they own these properties? Well. Well, the whole thing, wholesale things has been marketed so well, they even know what you're doing. So when you call these sellers, they're asking you, they're telling you who, whose program you bought because they bought it too, because it's popularized now. So as you have conversations with people who you thought or think 
are going to sell you their house for nothing. They're trying to beat you at your own game, and they're like, they're playing a game with you. But the guys who taught you that taught you that in a market that was doing well. You learned that in a market that was doing well. It's going to be a rude awakening to real estate investors who've only seen that side. And all this comes back to Alex's point. That side has been because everything's been frothy. The loss that you just took is going to be the new normal for people who are actually calling themselves real estate investors. And then when they turn to the guys who told them how to buy these houses at these numbers, then they'd be like, what's, I can't. And they'd be like, I ain't never seen this before either. Right? So why does that, why does that, how does it all tie in? I wasn't done with the first point. See, the people who are actually going to have to sell their houses because, and the bank's gonna allow them to sell them short, um, there's gonna be a, like a lot of them, yes, right? Yes. So because there's gonna be so many people that are gonna sell their houses short, and there's gonna be so many investors looking to buy stuff. See, what happens at that point, because the inventory is now there, because everybody wants to sell, they wanna get out of the house. But as they're getting out of their house and they wanna sell, well, the market's not climbing ridiculously anymore. Well, why? We forgot something. You see, remember when we had the conversation and we said in the beginning that people who are buying houses now, they're out there, but there's very little inventory. What nobody's actually talking about is there are very little buyers too. It seems like there are a lot of buyers only because there aren't a lot of houses on the market. Right. But once the real market opens up, and all the inventory hits and people actually have to make decisions that they want to sell, you'll see that right now, for every, let's say for every 10 houses, you have 100 buyers. What happens when for every 100 houses, you have 10 qualified buyers? Well, that's when your market value drops. That's when everything changes. And for real estate investors who are buying now, based on the comps over the last two, three, four, six months. Like they're buying now, hoping to ride this thing out. See, I, I got caught in this before. I got caught. I got caught in a market swing. I got caught paying too much for stuff then the prices immediately dropped. It was a shit. And then like losing my shirt, like you just said, you lost a couple of dollars, that became the thing. So right now, until this thing settles down a little bit, all the people who are out here buying things that don't actually make sense, they're gonna get hurt so bad, the investors, because the values that they think these homes and properties are gonna sustain, they will not be there. Six, eight, 10, 12, 14 months from now. And you're gonna see that shift starting to happen end of summer, fall. So the guys who think they're gonna get those values, oh no. Because the demand for property, the demand for property is gonna drop in relation to the availability of market. Because when you got 10, when you got 10 and 100 looking at it, oh, it's the hottest bitch in the club. <laughs> but when you got 100 and only 10 people looking at it, take your fat ass home. And now, <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Bro, come on, man. <clears throat> no. And that's where everything is going. And that's what I know how to do. That's what I've been doing, getting properties yeah. at these discounts in that situation. Oh, let, let, let's not to mention, Huh. The fact that once you actually have these conversations as 
an investor with people who are going through the short sale pre-foreclosure process, let's talk about the fact that you can actually pick up these houses that these people have issues at, at 50% and below of the actual market value. Right. Mm. <laughs> Go ahead, Marlon. Yeah, no, this is why I wanted to bring him on here, bro, because this is the conversation we were having back at Business Over Breakfast when it's talking about the opportunity that's, that's going to present itself for all of the people who are looking to buy and that know, that, that understand that real estate goes in cycles. One thing that we, like, we can't even give that experience because we don't have it ourselves. We can tell you from the perspective of a, a market that is increasing. We have not been in a market that is on, the, on a downswing. So we can't tell you, we can't pr literally provide every single piece of information to our audience that's why it's so important for us to bring on guests who have experienced another side of it that's why i liked when you were talking about your boy who was trying to who was looking to rent out his house versus sell it right now you understand that there is selling opportunities and buying opportunities and you know what type of market which one uh well, what type of market works best for each and for each uh side right now is a great great seller's market if you want to sell something for a top dollar this is the time to do it but it's probably a terrible time to be trying to get into it and just and load up on property because at some point in time, everything that you were talking about with your, your, entire, your entire story is going to come into fruition. And because the banks are not going to continue to allow this forbearance to go on forever. When that happens and people got, got complacent, something something is going to happen that's going to shift over the real estate industry. And if you're not, if you don't know that from any prior knowledge, or you you, you never experienced that, you are not. You're not even going to be ready for what's for what's going to happen. But the people who have seen it before and know what like know what to, what signs to look for, that have experienced it for themselves, like you, you are just sitting in line and wait, saying this is going to be the opportunity where people were talking about back in 09, 2010. Man, I, I wish I had more money. I would have bought every property out there because this is that's where the buying opportunities truly lie at. And that's why I wanted to bring you on here, just because of the fact that you had that that side of information that we didn't, we weren't even privy to ourselves, based on our experiences. Look at look at now. Let's look at from a societal standpoint, right? We barely tapped into. We like glazed over. I asked the question, but I I don't think we emphasized on it. What really happens when you condition someone, number one, not to have to pay a mortgage payment? What about the deeper issue? What happens when you condition a nation of people that they don't have to go to work? So not only do you not have to, not have to pay your mortgage payment, you also don't have to go to work because Uncle Sam is going to take care of you. And you can actually sit home and make more money than you would have made on at your job, some people. Yeah. <clears throat> so now you've, you're coming on a, like, we're coming up on, there's a, there's a vast amount of people out here that don't even want to go to work. Because now they're on, their mind is untrained to that routine. And they fool themselves into thinking that they're entrepreneurs. Because they sold a couple t-shirts. On social media, or they sold some body drink, or they sold like look. So many people have been fooled into believing that they're actually going to be successful entrepreneurs because they've had the actual cushion of money coming in from the government, unemployment, whatever the case may be, 
They never reached, they never actually hit a pivot. So those people who are sitting at home, making money at home, like everything they can get, like they can do that forever. When those businesses that they built aren't as successful as they were at one point, well, many of them are going to say, I'm still not going to go get a job. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to be an entrepreneur again. And they're not going to go get a job. What's happened in the last year or so, it has crippled our economy, not only from a financial aspect, but what about the societal, from the societal mental aspect of the whole entire thing? Like, do we actually think about that that side of it? Like, people don't want to work. And I'm not saying, listen, we already know, yet rock your side hustle until you actually make it your main hustle. We get that. Entrepreneur, we get it. Great. But understand, there has to be a point in which you're so comfortable with your side hustle that you can make the shift from your main hustle where your side hustle prevails. Don't count the money that they've given you and factor that in to your business plan. Like you might have to go back to work and still do the thing on the side. And don't, do you understand how many people out here actually feel like it's beneath them to get a job? It's beneath the people to get a job. A lot of people out here. <laughs> so that is going to, that, that mindset is going to cripple a lot of us as well. So there's just so much, there's going to be such a rude awakening, not only from a short sale aspect, just from a broke just as a human, just as a human being from a humanitarian aspect, I'm like, this is about to hit the fan. It's about to go crazy. You know? Yeah. It's about to be, it's about to be systemic out here. And if you got a couple of dollars, listen, if you got a couple of dollars, put it away for a rainy day. I would advise, I would advise you guys, unless you guys are getting a super steal on a deal and they're giving it to you, don't even bother. Yeah. And I would tell anybody, unless you're stealing it, don't even bother. Period. Unless, unless you have a, a different strategy. If your intent is to fix and flip within a couple of months, you have to get it priced so low that you feel like you stole it for the person and you feel bad about the person you bought it from. If you don't walk away from that negotiation or that situation feeling bad, like, oh, I kind of got it too cheap from the person that you got the house from, then don't buy it. <laughs> That's a fact. So what that I, I like that you brought that up because we had this conversation last year when COVID had began because we were kind of trying to decide whether because one thing we were doing originally we was buying rental properties originally but then we kind of pivoted last year um, in terms of just deciding to completely flip just based on you know just taking what the market gives you right and so one thing that we talked about you know was deciding it whenever we were thinking about whether we want to flip or anything or, or you know or continue buying rental properties we thought about the fact of you know, whenever, you know, this does turn around and then obviously, you know, the government printing money and all those kind of things kind of went into that decision as well into, you know, helping us say that it'd probably be a good idea right now to flip. But even right now, before prior to last year, we would never have done a flip that was just in this market in San Antonio, nothing over that's over two hundred thousand dollars. But right now, just based off of, you know, what, you know, kind of how the inventory looks, we are flipping a house right now that's going to be a four fifty to $500,000 flip that's going to sell in June, so this month. So it's not something that we bought it a few months ago, so it's not something we're just like, you know, holding out for a long time. But 
the reason I bring this up is because it's like, obviously, it's like the market is always going to give you one thing. In 2010, it's a lot different from 2021, right? The, it's like, it's a completely different, it's the same game, but it's a different strategy. It's like the NBA in the 90s versus the NBA today. It's like the same game, but it's a different strategy. And explain, so one thing. Explain. What do you mean? What's the So so Because like, he talked like he was around. <laughs> well, I'm this is the research. I did some research. Tell me why this is different. In 2010 versus now, or are you talking about the NBA now? I don't care about the NBA. I'm talking about real estate. The reason I'm saying real estate is different is just based off the fact that, I mean, 2011 years ago, you could have bought things at a significant discount just based off of coming off of the you know, the cusp of the housing market crash, right? Versus now, obviously, it's the complete opposite, right? Now, you're you're not buying anything, if especially if, like, you know, there's people that are trying to go buy stuff on the MLS and all those kinds of things. It's like, there's there's no, it's very hard to find a discounted deal that's going to be a good deal. Like you're saying, people are overpaying for stuff. Back then, it was a lot harder. It was a lot more likely to buy something at a good discount. Today, it's like, I saw actually a video you posted. You were talking about how REO properties today are going for, of fifteen percent higher than, I'm, I don't know what time frame you talked about, but you said it was fifteen percent higher. And so, sorry, right now, investors and the middlemen, like you said, they're getting priced out, right? Because now people are just coming in, and they're like first-time homebuyers coming in buying the properties themselves, as opposed to you know just so, just because they know they can use these kind of loan programs, two or three K, and you know the FHA streamline all these renovation loans. Try to fix the property themselves and just cut out the middleman because that's just what the market is right now. So it's a completely different environment. Does that make sense? That's kind of what I'm talking about in that regard. I can see why. I can see why you want it to make sense. Yeah. So please, please tell me why it doesn't. I'm gonna tell you because for your 2008, but for your 2010, there was also a 2007. So what happened in 2007, you weren't privy to, but yeah. that led to what happened in 2004, 5, 6, and 7 led to what happened in 2010. Yeah. Similar to right now. Right. So how is it any different when I'm telling you, I'm actually telling you it's not different, this time next year? will resemble what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I see the difference. No. It's, <laughs> I'm just talking about buying though. Huh? I'm talking about the site the part of the cycle that we're in in the market right now. So he's comparing 2021 versus 2010. So maybe 07 08. Uh, now you, have that, to, you have to compare okay. 2021 07. Correct. Yes, no, yeah. that matches. So okay. 2010 you're right. It was the part of the cycle from 1 to 7 to yeah. 10. So yeah. this comparison should be more so to 07, but 07 created the opportunity for 2010. Yeah, which is 2021 is similar to 07. Correct. Yeah. 2018, 19, 20, yeah, 2017, 18, 19. Right? That's your 405, 06. Yeah. Yeah. And so, exactly. okay. Oh, go ahead, Mark, because I was I was gonna go somewhere with that. Oh, no, go ahead. Go, go, go ahead. I'll, I'll just I'll just comment on what you said. Yes. The reason I say that is because Obviously, back then, like in terms of because of what I wanted to get into was kind of how, how you're staying competitive in this market. It sounds like I mean, just based on what you said, 
your strategy was just if you can't get it for a discount, then then just throw it away, leave it alone. So it's like, how are you? How are you finding deals? You know, in the market that is so, so saturated, so, uh, you know, a two thousand and twenty one type market right now. How are you? How are you still finding? You know, properties because you talk like I said, you talk about how fifteen percent markups on REO properties. You know. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Let's start here. REO, I was an REO broker for a number of years. One of the biggest REO brokerage firms in New York for a number of years. Top producing REO broker. Did that. Mortgage banker, number of years. Right? Did that. Credit repair, did that. Hard money lender, did that. All those things, construction, everything pertaining to real estate. Let's put a check mark on all that. The only way that I acquire real estate, the only way that I show people how to acquire real estate, the only way I fix and flip real estate, the only way I create rental rental portfolio inventory is reaching out to people who are in pre-foreclosure where the bank is about to take their house that don't have equity. So every time you, you go to PropStream, right? Say it again? You guys use PropStream? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pro, yeah, that's, yeah. A lot of you guys use that stuff. Great. So when you go to PropStream, what you do is you, um, as an investor, you, you look at the particular list. The list that you look for is called, it's called a high equity list. So what you do is you look for people who actually have a ton of equity in the house because hopefully they'll bite the bait and take your low offer because they have a small, they have no mortgage or a small mortgage. And then what your job is to do is go in and have a conversation with them and offer them a little bit of money for a house worth a lot more. See, things just ain't the same for gangsters. <laughs> because what I do is I might go into that same software, which I don't, but I could, and I show people how to do it, but I can go into that same software. Yeah. And every time you create a list, you create a list of people who have equity. Mm-hmm. I create a list of people who don't have equity. You see, I create a list of houses where people have mortgages on them, the mortgages that they have, they're behind on, and they owe very close to or more than what the property is worth. Why very close to? Well, very if they owe very close to what the market value is looking like on PropStream, then there are probably things wrong with the house that I could convince a bank that need to be repaired, which will obviously show the real value of the house, which will be a lot less than what they owe. And by the way, they're in the pre-foreclosure process. They're about to lose the house anyway. So when I call the individuals that are in pre-foreclosure that don't have equity, see, they're not having a conversation with me from a position of greed, where they want. They have a conversation with me from a position of need, where I'm helping them. See, I'm helping them with a monkey off, get a monkey off their back. Because the monkey that's on their back is the fact that a few weeks or a few months from now, their house is going to go to the auction. And when it goes to the auction, an investor is going to buy it. You see, when their property goes to the auction, 
let's use a round number. Let's say your market. Let's say someone owes $300,000 for a property. Let's say it's vacant. They haven't paid for over a year. They owe 300, but it's vacant. Because it's vacant, maybe they haven't paid in two years. People have, you know, there's vandals has gone in and ripped things out of the house. There's graffiti on it, there's boards on it, windows are broken, kids partying. Maybe a little fire happened, a couple of small fire in the back before. So what happens is they know that they left the house however long ago. Well, why did they leave? Well, maybe they left because they lived there. Maybe they left because they were landlords and they tend to stop paying them and they stopped paying the mortgage and they were done with it. You see, I reach out to those people who have mortgage issues. And when I reach out to someone who has a mortgage issue, they then put me in contact with their lender. The bank, yep. And then when we get in contact with their bank, we say, hey, listen, bank, this house is worth nowhere near what Mr. Jones owes you. It's actually worth this. It's worth, he owes you 300000 It's worth this whole 150000 That's what it's worth. Or maybe this whole 100000 back in. This is what it's worth. Now, Mr. Jones or Johnson, whoever Mr. is, is in a situation that if, it's, if it probably goes to auction, then what happens at the auction, someone's going to pick up that house for $150,000, right or wrong. That's true. Someone's going to buy it. When that person buys it for $100,000 to $150,000, say they picked it up for $100,000. They buy it for $100,000. But remember I told you Mr. Jones Johnson owed $300,000? You see, Mr. Jones Johnson is going to have what we call a deficiency balance. He's going to owe $200,000 still on that property. What does that turn into? Liens, judgments, garnished bank accounts. But now he has a $200,000 deficiency judgment that's going to follow him. And if he owns another piece of property, they're slapping it right on that house too. Coming for the bank accounts, everything. So now the person who got the house at the auction, they're great. They go in, they do the work, they fix it, they flip it, they do $100,000 worth of work, they enter it for two, they sell it for three. But Mr. Jones Johnson is screwed because at the end of the day, he's running around with that judgment, that lead. Now the only thing he can do to get rid of that is what? Bankruptcy. Really tear his credit up. But you would never call Mr. Jones Johnson as a wholesaler, as a real estate investor, a real estate agent. This is why I'm successful, because y'all are never calling because y'all don't know how. See, have, making the conversation happen between Mr. Jones Johnson, him authorizing me to talk to his bank, and then him, me negotiating with his bank, is a process. It's a process. That process, as soon as it starts, it actually slows down the foreclosure process of the bank taking his house on auction, slows it down a little bit. So now it gives me time to get busy and start negotiating with the bank and make a viable offer to them. More suitable, obviously, in the investor's favor than theirs, but they'll take it. So Mr. Jones Johnson, when the house actually gets short sale, which is that process that I'm telling you about, oh, there is no deficiency judgment. There's no balance. There's no nothing. He walks away scot-free. You see, the 300000 that he owed, even though the house was sold for 100000 that other 200000 that he would have had to had liens and judgments and garnished Oh, yeah, that's forgiving completely. So when I call Mr. Johnson, Jones Johnson, and make him aware of the situation, how I can help him as an investor, it's called a Christmas call. <laughs> when you call Mr. Jones Johnson or send him a letter, or get him on the phone and say, I want to make you an offer for your house, it's usually called harassment. This is why, this is what separates what I do from what other guys do. 
And this is the only way I acquire real estate, teach people how to acquire real estate. And I've done this, I don't want to say, I, I don't want to say 10,000, I don't want to put a number, but let's say I've done this since 2007 going into eight consistently. And there hasn't been a year that I've done less than, even in the beginning, I haven't done less than 10 million in deals. Even in the beginning. Now I'm in New York, New York. I'm in New York, the price point's different. 10 million, no, that's not even a lot. Let me say 10, three, three. Acquisition price. Yeah, it hasn't been a year of less than 10 million. So 130 million. Uh, let's like, it's maybe way more than that. I'm just honest. And that's 130 million. Now I'm talking about, I'm talking about in deals. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Like, let's not. We're not gonna do that other thing, because that. <laughs> no, we're just talking about property. Property sure. acquisition costs on an annual basis more than ten million. So, when you do that consistently, what do you think it feels or looks like when you actually see another one of these files and you're just pushing them through and you're pushing buttons, you're just hitting the bank up to negotiate? How difficult do you think the whole process is? Oh, it's simple because it's my only business model. So, what I do. So. Being that I've done this, even while the market was frothy, think about it. While you were running around talking to people who had equity, I was still leaving them alone. I was still talking to people who didn't. So now my conditioning level is different because the strategy that I'm telling you about right now is going to be the only strategy to acquire real estate because everyone's going to be over leveraged. Think about all the people who haven't paid. Do you realize that just because they haven't paid doesn't mean that they don't like the bank, they don't not owe the bank. They haven't paid, but the mortgage balances, like those payments get tacked onto the mortgage still. There's still a balance that they owe. They haven't paid their property taxes either. That's on that. And a lot of them have moved. They've gone, they've gone to other places to figure it out. They've already moved. A lot of people have already moved. They've taken the government money and taken a free ride with the mortgage company, mortgage bank, and they've already relocated to other states. And the properties that they actually own that they're not paying for are vacant. And they're figuring it out. They haven't done anything yet. I don't want to sell yet. I don't know yet. They're figuring it out still. Or maybe half the families leave. So remember, the wife's in the house, right, with the kids. The husband's out trying to find a new, their new place they're going to plant their flag. So he's exploring Texas, he's exploring Georgia, he's exploring Florida, he's exploring the Carolinas. A lot of people spend this time to explore and figure out where they're gonna set up shop next. There's a lot of crazy valuables in this space right now. And it's all gonna come to a head because the fact of the matter is there are millions of people whose mortgages are in default that are going to have to sell, but they're not going to be able to sell at market value and at today, at market value, and pay a real estate agent, and take care of what they owe the bank. Yeah. So they're going to have to sell short. Now, we didn't even get into the fact that, what about all these vacant houses out here? How often do you see vacant houses, you look them up, and you're like, oh, they you'll see a vacant house, right? And you're in San Antonio. Let's say, let's say the going price of, let's say, a, let's call it a three-two, three-bedroom, two-bath. Let's say the going price is $400,000. Or fits. You look at it in whatever software you use to look up property. When you look it up, you're like, oh my God, this person owes 320 on this house. 
but it needs 100,000 in work. Uh, we can't do anything with that. This person owes 250 on the house. It needs 100,000 worth of work. There's probably no money to be made. We're gonna leave it alone. I'm calling all those people and I'm negotiating it short with them. And believe me, I'll probably end up getting for 100 to $125,000 because it's faking. That's the low-hanging fruit in this game. I'm not even tapped in. We're still talking about people who occupy their properties. I haven't even told you about the vacant property magic, how you get those at 30% of the after repair value. But you got to know how to, give, not to navigate the strategy. It's the only strategy I do. So me staying on front of a stage at the event that we were at and trying to do my best to divulge this type of information to an audience that weren't necessarily embracing it because it might have been the wrong atmosphere. And, you know, right bus, wrong seat type situation. It wasn't, I didn't, why would I feel it? It's your boss, not mine, whatever. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just but this is what it is. And this is what I teach, this is what I show. I got a four week program. It's called my short sale closer program. It's live. Just like I'm talking to you guys right now, I'm talking in front of a whiteboard with banners. I'm going through this whole process for four weeks, one night a week, for 90 minutes to two hours. And I teach everybody this entire strategy from beginning to end. And once I teach them, blow their mind, I offer the opportunity to mastermind mentor them for the next 12 months to make them ultimately successful. And in order to make all this happen, over the last six years, I've created my own CRM to make all this hop to actually a business in a box, to create the lead, monitor the lead, negotiate with the bank, make phone calls through the system, process the whole entire file, flip the house, get your money. I think so they created in my software the ability for bird dogs to get paid. You know bird dogs guys are just fine houses? Oh yeah, my mastermind, they got opportunity to make houses, they make money too. Without wholesaling on a damn thing, all they gotta do is find a house. And it's literally the low hanging fruit is the vacants. That's it. It's all over the country. And that's what I was trying to put people on to. That's what I was That's what I was introducing to the audience that you think I was so frustrated by. Mm -hmm. I was not frustrated. I was living comfy. Good. <laughs> I left that joint. I think where where I go? I went to Eddie V's, where was steakhouse? I went to I was feeling good. <laughs> by Luan, I'm good. So it was great. Um but that's the strategy. That's going to be the strategy. And it just so happens that I've been doing this for as long as I, over 10 years. And just now, I think will be, I don't think, I know that now will be the biggest division of wealth in real estate, period, that we have seen in decades. Right now will be the biggest line in the sin between those who succeed and those who fail in this game. It'll be even bigger than it was 12 years ago. Because there was a, you know what happened 12 years ago? 08, 9, 10. You see, a lot of people had the ability to keep their homes by loan modification. Meaning that they could keep their home because they could modify the terms of their loan and it would make sense. Well, why would it make sense? Well. The going rate to purchase a home back then, people had six, seven, and eight percent interest rates on the houses. When they modified, 
those interest rates drop down to one or two percent a month. So even if you ended up, you hadn't paid your bank for a year or two or three, if you ended up on an extra hundred grand on the house, do you realize that you can actually owe the bank an extra hundred grand because your interest rate went from eight to one? Your payment is now less than it was when you started. So the bailout for them then was the interest rate was so much higher right. and it adjusted six to seven percent lower so often that it was a win-win because they could modify. This time around, these people in foreclosure got three percent interest rates. So when you owe an extra fifty, hundred thousand dollars to the bank, where your interest rate going? What they gonna give you negative five percent interest rate? You go from two to three percent because people guess what they get? They got three percent, three and a half, four. Even if you got a four, you got a four, and the bank says, "Okay, we'll drop it down to a two and a half." You're like, "Mm, "Still can't afford it," because that's only a couple hundred dollars a month. You need a drastic drop. You need a you need a you know four digit drop. Ultimately, people are going to need in order to sustain these houses. They're going to need like literally a thousand better. Their mortgage payment needs to be reduced a thousand dollars and better for a lot of people. Or at least hundreds, hundreds with the Z on the end, hundreds. So if, in fact, you can't prove your ability to make that payment, as well as there's no wiggle room for a loan modification because your rate was already low. So you're at a three and a quarter percent and your payment was based on 250 grand and your mortgage payment at that time was taxes, insurance, 2000. You owe us an extra fifty now. Now you're at three hundred thousand, and we go from three and a quarter percent to two percent. You still got to pay us more than you actually paid before. So it's a catch up. Like you got to catch up and maintain at the same time. It's difficult because remember we want an actual payment, and then we want the other money too. Mm-hmm. Oh, but what if they put the other money on the back end? Fine, they put the other money on the back end. Um, you still got to prove that you can afford the other money. You still got to prove, because remember, when the bank met you, so you, when they met you, you were a different person. You were a different, you were, you were a different credit profile. You were a different financial risk when they met you. When you got introduced to the bank and you bought your house for the first time, you were introduced in a way like, oh, he doesn't have that much debt. He doesn't have a car payment. He has one, he has a car payment. It's only like $200 a month. He's responsible. He doesn't have two. He's not overextended in credit, but then you bought the house. So when you bought the house, what you do? You got a pool, got that on credit. You put an extension on it, got that on credit. Brick patio, that on credit. Fence, put that on credit. Put a new roof and windows, put that on credit. You got a new car, that on credit. Upgraded it. So now you got all those things the bank has to factor in. Because you're not the same person they met before. They're like, oh my God, who are you? You're a whole different person. They don't even know you anymore. And now you just show them. They're asking you, if, if you want us to let you keep your house, then you have to show us who you are and we'll believe you. And then you show them who you are. They're like, oh, no, this is not who we married. <laughs> you are a risk. And then you're done. Yes, sir. Hey, I just want to say I appreciate you for coming on, man, because I, like I said, I knew it's going to be of tremendous value. And I knew I think this is a great rude awakening for anybody that's in real estate. I know it is for myself. I hope it is for Alex, too. I think for anybody that is in real estate, know that the market is uh, the cycles are going to be changing. Like there's a, it's a whole cycle and it's, it's different phases of it all. So if you don't understand every single cycle and you don't understand if you don't think 
if you think th things are always going to be the same, you're sadly mistaken. And I think it's only a matter of time before we finally hit that point, and, th and then we'll see who is the elite elitist investors versus the ones who are just in the game just for the just for the ride up. But I want to make sure we segue into like our final segment of the show, which is called the Fast Five. This is where we ask all of our guests five questions, and, and they answer in 10 seconds or less. Alex starts with the first question, then we'll alternate from there. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, so let's get into it. First question, what does success mean to you? Freedom. That's it. Yes, sir. That's it. Question number two, what's your favorite money or business book? Money or business, my favorite? You know what changed me? What, what changed me in my organization and made me understand a lot better was actually Rocket Fuel. It helped me understand who I was and what I needed to do. Was do you I, know Wickman? Yes. You already know. Yep. Rocket yeah. Fuel. Rocket Fuel, that was that that changed a lot. Right? Because like I said, I, there was no school for this. So I didn't actually like I figured it out as I went along, as far as business is concerned. But it helped me put a lot of things in perspective and put people in perspective at the time that I needed to do it. So Rocket Fuel was definitely a game changer for me. Okay. Okay. Cool. Third question. Would you rather have a thousand dollars a week for life or a million dollars today and why? Would I rather have a million dollars today or a thousand dollars a week for my life? Yeah. Million dollars today because I know what to do with it. <laughs> so Easy simple. Peasy. All right. Perfect. Question number four. If you could go back and change anything about your journey, what would it be? If I could go back and change anything about my journey, the traffic that made me late for this call, I would just <laughs> I love my walk. <laughs> uh, that's a nothing. So okay. in essence, nothing. Nothing. Because I'm completely, I'm comfortable. I'm happy with who I am. Everything, all my experience have, uh, all of my experiences have allowed me to become the person standing in front of you right now. Had I not had all these experiences, I don't know who I'd be. And whoever I would be, I don't know if, I, if I'd even be as comfortable with that person. So this is God's plan, not mine. So who am I to try to turn back the hands of time? Not nothing. I feel that, man. Love it. Okay, last question. Where can people find out more about you? Instagram. Real Estate Informant. Lance Smith. ShortSaleCloser.com. They can jump on my actual... Um, my short sale training course where I teach this thing in four weeks. Also, short sale boom, right? That's something that, um, that it's an introduction, so it's a webinar. Short sale boom, it gives you an introduction, everything that I talked about just now. A short sale boom, short sale closer, and the real estate informant on the gram. It's the platform that I actually worked on building. I didn't really work on the other ones yet. But, um, and that's it, I got a YouTube channel, right? Real estate informant. And um, that's it, man. Like I said, I'm not, I was never the marketer. So you got guys who got into the business based off of marketing. So what they did was they created a marketing presence and I was like, okay, now I'm going to go to learn some real estate. So they created a marketing presence after listening to some audio books and watching YouTube and going to some seminars, created a president, created a presence, made this whole marketing thing. And then they said, I'm going to go do some deals now because people believe that I do this. And then they went to go do some deals. And now you believe that they're the truth. I did the reverse. I actually did this for 20 years and then I decided let me jump on social media. Well, yeah, for sure. No, we appreciate you again for coming on, man. Like it's been tremendous value, like I said before. And I, I really am um hoping to stay in contact with you for one, because I think this is this is gonna be a, a great 
resource for not only ourselves but for our audience to understand that there's more as there's more aspects to life especially in real estate besides what we've seen for the past few years and i think uh, it's just going to be so much it's so much that we have left to learn that i'm just grateful to have this connection in general so yeah appreciate you again for coming on man and um any last words for you i got a last word for you y'all in real estate right sir you're in real estate you want to dominate and change things in your market you want to become successful at this thing correct you want to kill, right? You don't want to lose out? Who's ready to join up for my course? I'm not charging you nothing. I just want you to, under, I just want you to slide. It's me teaching you, coaching you what I just started here. Both of you, I give you complimentary access to my next full week, which starts June 23rd. It's Wednesdays, 8 o'clock at night. It's 30.10. I want both of y'all on because what I'm going to do after that, what you're going to do after that, you're gonna talk a whole, you're gonna have a totally different outlook on this whole entire thing. Go to shortsaleclosed.com. Everybody else. Y'all, I'm gonna give y'all some information. Y'all LinkedIn. Y'all ready? Mm, man, I appreciate that, bro. <laughs> 20, I charge $2,500. First of all, I charge $2,500 for it, but I'm doing a discount. Like for pre orders, I think it's like $1,000. But y'all, let's go. Let's go. My man, my man. <laughs> That's a first for the podcast. <laughs> what you mean? People don't just get on here and just give you that shit for free? Nah, nah man. We, we be getting like discount codes and stuff. But... Really? Nah, man. Jump on it. Jump on it. That's, that's crazy. Jump on it. That's it for this episode of the Money Monopolizers podcast. New episodes will be released every Thursday and will be available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Just search Money Monopolizers wherever you listen to podcasts. We hope you learned something of value today. And if you did, we'd appreciate it if you rated us five stars and left us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also find out more info about us on Twitter at The Monopolizers or on IG at Money Monopolizers. We post informative content on there that keep, that'll keep you engaged, so be sure to check that out and share those posts. But until then, we're out of here. You've been listening to The Money Monopolizers Podcast, helping you take control of your financial destiny. To learn more about how you can be in control of your money, visit MoneyMonopolizers.com. We'll catch you next time when Alex and Marlon share more personal finance and wealth creation tips with you. Now it's time to take action.